Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by the press's editor-in-chief, Catherine Cox, and acquisitions editor, Caitlin Tyler-Richards, to discuss university presses, the resources they offer to faculty members, and the future of scholarly publishing at MSU Press. Thanks for tuning in. Catherine, Caitlin, thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm excited to see you and chat a little bit about publishing. Likewise, we're delighted to be here, Kurt. Thanks so much for having us here. I wonder if we could start, we were talking a little before the recording started about the kind of ongoing feeling that university press publishing is somehow a mystical kind of endeavor that happens behind the scenes and folks, you know, on the faculty side of things maybe don't quite understand or know about what goes on behind the scenes. I wonder if you each would be willing to share kind of what is the most common question that you get about publishing with university presses? And maybe what would you really like authors to know when they think about approaching a university press with their project? I don't know about the most common question I get, but I guess one of the misconceptions that frustrates me most in the sense that it wastes author's time and it wastes editor's time is that a lot of authors don't seem to be aware that presses specialize and that when you're looking to place your project, you should be doing a little research on which are the best presses in your field or in your particular disciplinary focus. And that doing that research will ensure that when you reach out to those presses, you're much more likely to get a positive response because people will say, oh yes, that's what we do. Similarly to what Catherine said, I don't think I get a question frequently, or the same question, but rather the sense I get on Twitter and talking with scholars is just a general fear of reaching out to acquisitions editors, because either to chat or to share their proposal or their book idea, because they're worried that they're going to do it wrong. And once they make a faux pas, an unforgivable faux pas, we won't be interested in them, no matter how brilliant their book idea is. And so... If I could tell scholars one thing, I would say, one, there are a lot of resources, or at least we have been trying to create a lot of resources for scholars interested in publishing with university presses, which I'm sure Catherine can talk more about. And also, don't be afraid. I'm always happy to chat, especially with first-time authors. I feel like it is one of our obligations as acquisitions editors to help demystify the book publishing process. Absolutely. And I would just add, before talking about some of those resources that Caitlin mentioned, I would just add that a lot of us are in this profession because we love talking to authors and especially scholarly authors about their research and about their book projects. So, you know, when you come up to us with a query, chances are we will be delighted to talk to you because we're really interested in what you do and having those conversations is the best part of our job. So yeah, don't be shy. Catherine, before we get to resources, could I just ask about the structure of those encounters? Like, I feel like a lot of the kind of anxiety that I encounter among graduate students and maybe early career folks is related to the book proposal and this kind of idea that this thing has to come in a really well-defined genre and there's a very specific way to do it. And this is what folks are looking for. And then when I talk to acquisitions editors, I get the feeling that it's a lot more informal, that there's like certain ways in which the proposal develops over time or grows out of conversation and and isn't maybe 
coming in out of the cold, you know, complete and total, you know, to be accepted or rejected in a single moment. Could you say a little bit about how the two of you approach that process? Like, is writing a book proposal something that folks should do, or should they really be starting with that conversational aspect? I guess I'll start and say, on one hand, it really depends on where you are with your book project. Because I do know that some people really feel most confident if they have the opportunity to develop a full proposal. It's like, that's how they develop the book project in and of itself. And if that's how your brain works, then I would recommend, like Catherine said, identify the presses that publish in your area, go to their websites. And I know our, not all of our websites are beautifully designed, but I promise you somewhere on their website should be some type of proposal guideline document that gives you a sense of what that press is looking for in terms of information and read that document and just as best you can try to hit all the points try to provide all the information that document asks for. Don't worry as much about formatting. Like you tell undergrads, don't worry so much about page count. Just try to get all the ideas in there. If, on the other hand, you're the sort of person who has this initial book idea and develops ideas through collaboration, then I would say I'm happy to have scholars reach out to me with a query, what we would call like a query email saying, I am thinking about working on this project. You seem like a good press for this project. Would you like to set up a meeting? In which case I'm happy to set up like a 30 minute meeting just to see if the project is a good fit for our press. And if it isn't, then maybe I know some presses who might be interested in it, or I can give some tips on how to develop the project. So it would be a good fit or a viable book for that matter. Yeah, I would add to that. You know, I know this process is especially scary for grad students who haven't done it before or junior faculty who, you know, need a book to succeed on the job market or to get tenure. And, you know, there's no way around those anxieties because they're career defining. Obviously, it's a big deal. And, you know, the ultimate, the proposal that you, that the sort of final version of the proposal does need to be polished and carefully thought out and all of that. But you're right, Kurt, that it can develop through conversations with an editor or with colleagues, you know, depending on who you feel comfortable with. The other thing that, that I'm going to suggest, which will then move us back toward the question of resources, is that your university press, if your university has one, you're, or if there's a university near you that has a press, those editors can be a resource for you, even if you don't intend to publish with that press. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, showrooming as, as people sometimes do in bookstores. But more for, I'm going to give an example without naming any names. A scholar here at MSU approached me and said, you know, she was in the process of writing a book proposal and she was just anxious about it. And, you know, she was looking for information. And we ended up having several conversations where I acted as, you know, it was clear that her project was not a good fit for MSU Press. She knew it. I knew it. There was, so we had no anxiety around that. But I was able to stand in for, the editor at a press that would be interested in her project and give her a chance to practice essentially so that she felt a lot more confident about her approach. And she could ask me, you know, can I ask this or what's the question to be sure to ask during a meeting and things like that. And as Caitlin said, we're always happy to talk and we do regard providing this kind of demystifying information as part of our job as university press editors. And so on a, on a larger scale, not just one-to-one, especially if you're feeling shy of overcoming that hurdle of approaching a total stranger and asking for help. Totally get it. 
There are a lot of written resources or online resources that you can turn to that can just give you enough background to make you feel comfortable with the process. And one that I have had the privilege of working on over the past couple of years is a website sponsored by the AU Presses. So AU Presses is the Association of University Presses, which is our kind of trade organization. About 150 university and scholarly presses are members of that. And so I think four or five years ago, the AU Press's faculty outreach committee came up with the idea of creating a website that would be a repository of information and FAQs about scholarly publishing. And it would just be there available to anyone who was interested, who was thinking about publishing with the university press just to, again, demystify the process. So it's called Ask UP, Ask Up. You can find it just by Googling Ask Up, or you can find it through the aupresses.org website where it's at the top. It's in the top menu bar on the right, I think. And the way it works is it's a collaborative effort of all of the university presses that are involved in AU Presses through the faculty outreach committee. So every quarter of the year since we launched in the summer of 2020, a different press has hosted the website. And what that means is they put their branding on the site. They do a bunch of publicity around the site. And they solicit your questions. So there's a portal on the Ask Up website where you can go and put in any, if you don't see that, the question that you have answered on the website, you can go ahead and put in your own. And it goes into a big spreadsheet that we maintain of questions. And then every host chooses, you know, anywhere between about five to 10 questions that the staff members of that press then write up answers. We all look at them. We talk, we edit. And then they go up on the website. So there's new content going up on the website every quarter. There's a lot of really good material there. It's definitely worth just going and poking around. There's a pretty good search. So you can search for something if you've got a specific question, or there's a menu that includes things like books, journals, copyright permissions, a number of other categories on there. If you've got a particular area of publishing that seems scary or mysterious to you, there are great resources there. And you also get, I think another thing that's great about it, because it is a collaborative project, is that you get some different perspectives on there. Not all presses do things exactly the same. So when you get on there, you'll find that some of the answers to the FAQs are actually signed by the presses that created them. And so you can get a sense of sometimes presses have different policies or they operate in different ways. And just this past year, uh, one of the members of the committee actually represents a British press. So we've, we've started to significantly internationalize the site as well. And in publishing, the British presses use terms differently than the American and Canadian presses. So there's some just terminological differences. And sometimes the retail networks are slightly different and operate slightly differently. So there's good information there um, for a wide range of people uh, and a wide range of issues. And it's growing every day. Right now, the current host is... Virginia, University of Virginia Press, um, and they'll be posting their answers, I think in a month or so. And then the upcoming host is Rutgers University Press. So stay tuned. And Catherine, to go back to one thing you said about if perhaps you're still nervous about reaching out to an individual editor, another service I enjoy providing is talking to classes, talking at conferences. And so like Catherine said, if your university has a press or there is a press nearby and you are a professor leading a graduate seminar or something like that, 
you could also consider reaching out to one of the editors and seeing if they'd be willing to come or zoom in to the classroom to give your graduate students some guidance on things. Yeah, that's a great point. And acquisitions editors like Caitlin and myself, we do these things frequently, but not frequently enough, in my opinion. Um, There are too many people who don't take advantage of that. And so another thing that the faculty outreach committee has tried to do is to build relationships between the AU presses and various scholarly societies so that we can do sort of how to get published panels every year at conferences. Because every year you've got new people coming up through graduate school, junior faculty, you know, developing their book projects. And so the idea is to provide a really steady form of professional development information to scholars in a forum where they're already there, they're already doing career development by giving those papers and, you know, having interviews and so on. So if your scholarly society would be interested in having an AU Press's organized professional development panel on publishing, please reach out. I think Kurt is going to put my Twitter handle at the end of this episode. So you can contact me that way, or you can check out the msupress.org website. My email address is there too. We sound so needy. We just want to talk to people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we are completely. We really want to talk to you. Come talk to us. We're lonely. I wonder, you know, that I feel like is is one of the things that really characterizes university press publishing, the sort of collegial, collaborative environment, the idea that all of these different presses, like even if you're, as you said, Catherine, if you're working with an editor who who isn't you know working in your field or you approach someone at a press at your university, they might point you to the larger network of the university presses to a place where, where your work is better suited or work with you to get it prepared. How, how much of your work as acquisitions editors, as the editor-in-chief of a press, is really that kind of faculty outreach, that sort of pedagogical work with graduate students and early career scholars? Like, Is there a balance between that and acquisition, or does it kind of flow naturally hand-in-hand from kind of pedagogy into acquiring work? Um, We do have to balance it. You know, for all that Caitlin and I have just said, we're always glad to do this and to help folks, which is true. We are not your personal coach (laughs) to get you to the point of proposing to someone else. I mean, ultimately, you know, secretly, we want your project, right? If it's a good fit for us. So universe publishing is very collegial and we do regard ourselves as providing an important service to scholars. We are also looking for projects that we can sign to our own press. And that needs to be a big focus of what we do as well. So we do need to balance it. It isn't actually in our job description to be pedagogues, to use your term, Kurt. You know, it's a part of what we do because we are, because university presses are designed to provide scholars with publishing opportunities. But we are also in it because we want you to publish with us, you know, because we publish, we're strong in certain areas. And if you come to me with a project in one of those areas, I'm going to be very excited and want to talk to you specifically about publishing with us and not some other press. To make us sound slightly less like monsters. (laughs) I don't think that's monstrous. No, it's not. It's honest. And I appreciate it. It's very Gen Z of you. I'll say also depending on the area of scholarship you work in, we might not be the best people to help you develop your proposal. So for example, we publish in the humanities and social sciences. Mm -hmm. So if someone with a math project 
people write math books, I guess. I don't know. But if you had a, um, a proposal like that, I wouldn't even know how to begin to advise you to develop your proposal. I don't know what that, what editors who acquire in like mathematics are looking for. So in that case, I would not be the best resource for you. Even something more like the hard sciences, I couldn't tell you what they want out of books. It's a mystery. <laughs> yeah. And, and publishing is highly specialized. So, you know, the things that Caitlin and I are comfortable with, the humanities based and to some extent social sciences projects, they have their own publishing ecosystem that we are very much a part of and we can help you out there. But fields that are a little bit further away from that, I might be able to point you to other publishers or I might be able to suggest other publishers that you might contact, but it's not going to be an area that, that I'm all that familiar with. But I will say, getting back to potential anxiety points, if we do respond that way, it is coming from a genuine place. We're not trying to brush you off. When I say, oh, I don't think this book is the best fit, I mean it sincerely. It's not because like there was a typo in your email or something like that. It's because I don't think we can provide the support that you need to develop the best project. Yeah. As Caitlin said, fit is real for us. We need, a, especially small presses like MSU Press, we can do a few things well, and we want to focus on those. We can't be everything to everyone. And it would be a disservice to authors who are publishing in fields that we don't support to work with them. So that's why it's important for you as an author to spend the time doing some research. You know, start with your own bibliography. Where were the books, the books that you're citing or the journals that the articles that you're citing, where were they published? Those are probably going to be the venues that you want to research for your own work as well. And don't waste your time and generate rejections you didn't have to get by approaching presses that simply don't publish in your area or journals that, that don't publish in your area. There's a tip though for if you're looking to identify presses, focus on books that are that were published within like the last five to 10 years because presses interests and focus change. So just because we published something that you've used back in the seventies doesn't necessarily mean that we're the best press for you today. I feel like I, I should put in a pitch for the Association of University Presses subject grid, which gives a kind of attempt to like nail down, you know, which presses are interested and active in which fields. I think they even have a chronological, like, is it a recent interest or is it something that they were doing in the past, like on that, on that chart as a way of helping direct people? Yeah, it's a big chart with like dots and boxes that indicate whether you're publishing in a certain area. And if the dot is just a circle without any fill in it, it means they used to publish that, but they don't anymore. And if it's a filled in little circle, then it means, yes, they're actively publishing in that area. So, and that is accessible through the Ask UP website if you want to get there. And I'll link to all of that in the description for the episode. I, I mean, I feel like that's such good advice and, and something that I that goes probably under theorized or acknowledged, like the degree to which you really need to find the right place, the right fit, and how much of rejection is just simple, like this doesn't fit, it's not going to work in the schedule. Before you even get to the merits of a project, you can tell like whether or not it's going to be, you know, something that the press is going to want to pursue. And and as you say. Um, authors can really save themselves some grief by just not submitting work to places that are bound to reject it 
because you know they don't do books on fishing or whatever the case might be. <laughs> I wonder, do you have? We do fishing in the Great Lakes, definitely an interest. Definitely at MSU Press, yeah, for sure. I wonder, are there other kinds of things that you find yourself telling authors, you know, kind of over and over those kind of generic email responses that you write a lot to queries that you receive all of the time? Yeah, no, I mean, I think a common one, less often from scholars, although it does happen from scholars as well, is someone will just send you a manuscript. And that's like a big no-no in publishing. Don't send me a manuscript. I don't have the time to read your whole manuscript. I need you to tell me in a proposal what it's about, what the focus is, what your intended audience is, you know, all those things we ask for in the proposal guidelines so that I can very quickly tell you, yes, this is a good fit or no, it's not a good fit. And then we can go from there to, to do whatever the next step is. Um, so don't send a manuscript until someone asks you for it. And one of my personal pet peeves are the people who send an attachment and the email just says, see attachment. You know, you're not emailing an automated account. <laughs> you're emailing a person and having the courtesy just to say, dear so-and-so, I would like you to consider my proposal for a project on this. I look forward to hearing from you. I mean, just two lines, that'll do it. Just not the blank look at the attachment. That, that doesn't do it for me. So my personal pet peeve, although I realize this is on acquisitions editors to a certain extent, is um, when scholars provide a, word, a page count as opposed to a word count. Because a page count, depending on what font you're using, depending on your margins, really doesn't tell me anything about how long it is. Whereas a word count, especially including footnotes and bibliography, can tell me whether the project is long enough or short enough to be a book. That's something that for some reason, I, if I don't see that information, it really bothers me. But no, more generally, I would say the answers that I tend to provide that's my authors seem to appreciate most is knowing just how long the publishing process takes, especially for first-time authors, especially if you are on um, the tenure clock. Unfortunately, the earlier you can start a conversation with an editor, the better, because there's just, and most scholars have heard this, like there's a high possibility that you're going to have to go through two rounds of peer review. Peer review, especially during the pandemic, has been taking much longer than um, usual. So I don't like to rush first-time authors, but also the earlier you can start, the better. So you can ensure that you have a comfortable publishing or comfortable writing and publishing schedule, that you're not pushing yourself at the very end. That's my like most important point of advice, I guess. Yeah. And I actually make a point of whenever I meet with authors, especially if they're first-time authors of telling them how long, about how long each stage of the process is going to take, both to, to head off what Caitlin is talking about, people who have unrealistic expectations of, of how quickly we can move, but also so people can plan. They can say, okay, it's going to take you about eight weeks to get back to me. Then I know I'm not sitting there wondering what's happening. I have a sense of when I'm going to hear back. And I do the same with peer review. I let people know how long it's going to take if reviews are delayed, get back to them and just say, it's going to be a few more weeks just to allay that anxiety, but also to make sure people understand that there's a lot of work that publishers need to do in moving your project from proposal to manuscript through peer review, past the editorial board, and then into production. 
And I think the production stages and marketing tend to be kind of invisible to a lot of folks. You know, they meet with me or Caitlin, we literally personify acquisitions to them. They have an ongoing relationship with us. They don't have the same kind of ongoing relationship with the production team or with the marketing team. And so the work that those folks do, I think is often even less visible to authors than the work that Caitlin and I do. And that's a pity because those folks do a tremendous amount of work and it's, you know, the production team, they're the folks who really take your manuscript from, you know, a bunch of pixels on a page to a beautiful printed book, a beautiful ebook that's well-designed, easy to read. It's got all its pieces. It's accurate. They took care of all your typos and those words you always misspell and, you know, all of that stuff. The marketing people are absolutely essential in a world in which we're all flooded with way too much information. They're the ones who are out there thinking really strategically about how do we get this project in front of the right people who are going to be really passionate about it. So we could spend a whole nother podcast talking about the great work that production and marketing do, but I would just urge authors to come in with, you know, if you don't know what's happening, ask, we'll be happy to explain and come in knowing that the folks behind the scenes at a press, they really care about your work. They want it to succeed. They are working really hard every day to make it succeed. And they want your partnership and frankly, your respect for the work that they do in that. And so we work with a great team. I've worked with folks at other presses as well, and it's a real team effort. And we want the author to be a good member of that team. Catherine, if I could just add on to that, you had said that work is very, is invisible from an author's perspective. And I would also add in terms of demystifying the process, I think when authors think about what goes into writing a book, like how they should set aside their time, they're really understandably focused on the writing process. And so they're going to write the first draft and that's going to go through peer review and then they're going to have revisions and then it's going to go into production. And then I think there's a certain sense of relief, like their job is done. And unfortunately, that's not quite true. You do want to set aside time for uh, responding to copy edits, for filling out the marketing questionnaire, for proofreading, or finding someone to create the index for you. <laughs> Creating the index. Do not forget the index. Yeah. Um, if, you, if you're at a well-resourced institution. Yes. Perhaps. So I would also, again, when you're, if you're an author who's looking to work with a publisher or think, uh, embarking upon your publishing experience, don't forget those last steps because you don't want to lose steam at that point. Because like having the energy to provide feedback on the back, on the back cover copy, on the cover, what have you, is also really important to having, again, the best book project that you possibly can. Absolutely. Here, here. That's a really interesting place, I think, for the question about the podcast to enter the conversation just briefly, because there's a really, I mean, I feel like it's an interesting phenomenon to want to be an author and to like sort of approach a press and like, you're going to take my work and publish it for me. And then like at a certain point, I will remove myself and allow the press to do like whatever it does when really what you're asking the press to do is prepare and present and market your work to some group of people or others. And I think the reason I mentioned the podcast in this context is that I can see just based on like number of listens to the episodes of the show, 
that the authors who are involved in sharing the show and who are connected to networks of people that they're sharing their work with and that they're marketing it to, those episodes get way more listens than the ones that I can share through the press's website or that I share through my networks or like with the, I did one recently of an edited collection. So like we'll get a few dozen listens from the people who contributed to the collection and some of their friends. But the, the authors who are really on the back end also like still promoting the work, still getting involved in making sure that folks know about it and that they're taking up whatever the product is. Those are the episodes that get more listens. And I know that the same is true for like authors and their books, like the more engaged they are in the marketing process, the more keyed in they are to professional networks and audiences who might be interested in their work the more that press can help them advance that cause as opposed to like if they take their hands off it and say, okay, well, you've done it now. Here's my book. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I know, and I share this, a lot of people feel kind of squeamish about promoting themselves and promoting their book. I would say, think of it as building, you know, it is part of being part of the scholarly conversations that you care about to say, hey, I poured a lot of time and intellectual energy into thinking about this, researching it, analyzing it, writing it. I want people to engage with it. I want to have those conversations. And so think about promotion as making sure that you are participating fully in those conversations that you care about. You know, there was a great piece in the, I think it was in the Chronicle, maybe it was in the Inside Higher Ed several years ago now about a couple of authors, co-authors who set up their own sort of unofficial author tour and university presses, with almost no exceptions, do not have the resources to send you on an author tour the way you hear about with you know David Sedaris and, and people like that. But these co-authors put together their own event by contacting people they knew at other universities and saying, "How about having us for you know a brown bag talk or you know a lecture? Invite us to present to your class." And they put together a whole series of events just by tapping their own network and met with grad students and faculty and, you know, interested community members, you know, and that was a great way to get out and talk about the issues that they really cared about. And if some people brought, bought the book as well, terrific, then that was a further engagement with those issues. So university presses are nonprofits and those of us who work at them, we do it because we're passionate about the things that we publish. We're passionate about getting scholarship out to the communities that care about it. And so the marketing is really an extension of caring about the ideas. And I'll just say, I, I do want to leave space for the fact that our scholarly authors in particular are asked to do a lot as part of their jobs. And so it is also entirely understandable that not everyone or even very many ones have the time to set up um, a tour or do a lot of Zoom events. And so again, I would just say Try as you're thinking about the time you need to set aside for your book project, maybe consider setting aside some time for like quote unquote marketing work, like just ahead of time. Think of that as part of working on your book so you can kind of build it into your schedule. Yeah. I mean, something that sort of works with your career, you know, something that you would need to be doing anyway. If you know your book is coming out, you're probably going to know a year in advance try and set up a panel around related issues at the next big conference that you go to. And that is both marketing and it's a regular part of your scholarly career. So it's not so much of an additional burden because definitely we know people are 
very busy. <laughs> so are we. And a lot of people are being asked to do a lot more with fewer and fewer resources. And I, you know, I would say, given that situation, we really definitely need to work together to make sure, again, that the ideas that matter really get out there and circulate and that people are able to continue having these conversations that matter so much. And maybe if we keep having them, we can change the circumstances that make us all so tired and burdened. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Catherine Cox and Caitlin Tyler Richards, both editors for the MSU Press. You know, I wonder on that note, thinking about how do you gel you know, your work with the kind of existing realities and how things are kind of changing or what things are like what's expected of an academic author. I wonder if, if, you, if you could talk about how the role of an editor is changing, you know, given the kind of new scholarly ecosystem where folks are working with big data and maybe creating projects that aren't like very neatly translated into a codex form. Like what does that, what does it sort of do to your job to be in this place where, where scholarly communications are happening you know, so much differently now? And there's maybe pressure or interest in doing publishing in different kinds of ways. That is such a good question that I feel like we could really approach from two different angles. So as the digital humanities and digital studies editor at MSU Press, I think maybe we could first talk about the pressures that new publishing forms create four presses, especially smaller presses. And then we can talk about the more fun, like what opportunities are available with projects that are not sort of bound, half bound by this traditional codex form. Yeah, maybe we can talk about the sad stuff first though, in terms of pressure. So there are projects more and more that are digital born or hybrid projects that unfortunately just don't work or not unfortunately per se, but do not, would not work as um, a tradition in a traditional book form. Um, I'm thinking about digitization of newspapers, oral history collections, and other ones that don't come to mind immediately. I'm thinking of like the Furnace and Fugue that the University of Virginia Press published, where they combine sort of traditional academic analyses of a particular text with musical performances and artwork that were part of that original text. So really trying to meet that original alchemical handbook on its own ground, in a sense, by using the digital. Yeah, that's an excellent excellent example. And so that um, project was published through a collaboration between University of Virginia Press and Brown. That is a, a great example of a digital publication that is beautiful and shows you all the opportunities available, both available in DH and digital publication, but also that project was possible because different institutions had a lot of grants, existing grants that allowed them to put money down that not everyone has. No, I just, I mean, the point is that, you know, the digital projects are you know, we know how to do an affordable book project and everybody knows what the physical object is and how to create it. We have 500 years of expertise in creating books. We don't have, we have maybe a couple of decades of expertise in creating multimedia projects. And as Caitlin said, they cost a lot of money. They're more 
you know, custom made than a book is. They have different kinds of affordances and they're not, you know, you're not going to sell it. You know, most university presses are still working on a, a revenue model where we need to sell the books that we produce in order to cover the cost of producing them. And the big newspapers and magazines are currently figuring out paywalled subscription models, but no one has figured that out for scholarly DH or digital studies projects. So, you know, when we think about doing that kind of work, we're starting with fundraising. We're starting with how, you know, and the scholars are there too, right? Raising the money to do these digitization projects and things like that. You have to think about the money first, and then you can start thinking about platforms and affordances and do the fun intellectual work of actually creating it. And then, of course, you've got big questions about preservation. How long is this project going to exist? What happens when software changes? All of those things. And your university library is a fantastic resource for talking with people who are thinking about that all the time because the long-term viability of digital resources is, is something librarians have been working on for a couple of decades. And another thing that is a challenge, but also an opportunity Let's say, you know, an author comes to us with a fully developed or a, a mostly developed and paid for digital project and asks us to get involved at some level, say, by providing peer review so that it, the project counts as scholarship. We have to think about what exactly are we peer reviewing? A digital project can continue to grow in a way that's much more difficult for a book, right? I mean, you can always go back and do a revised edition of your book, but there's a much more cumbersome process of revising it, sending it through the press again. And a website, you can wake up in the morning and roll out of bed and add some new content to your website. So there are challenges sort of to our, our the process of peer review and then the process of quality checking. You know, what is it that we are peer, uh, we are copy editing, for example. If you've digitized an amazing collection of sources or provided transcripts and recordings of oral histories, are we copy edit? I mean, and that the scope of that could be immense depending on the size of the archive that you're working with. So Caitlin, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, well, one, I don't, as someone who does DH, I definitely don't like roll out of bed in the morning and add to my website. So I think that's less of a concern. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can tell yeah. I don't do this work. I, I feel like that's a boogeyman for um, editors who are getting involved okay. in DH or thinking about getting involved in DH that I want to, uh, I want to placate. I don't think that's the concern, but I do think the um, issue you brought up of if a scholar asks us to help with peer reviewing a digital site, and it is primarily a collection or an archive, what actually, like, I start to wonder, like, what value do we actually bring? What, or rather, what value does the peer review process bring? Because, see, I, I think we could play an important role there, both editorially and in terms of peer review, if you just think about it as a reference work, so, hmm. right? They're creating a collection that other people are then going to use for their own research, right? So that if you've created transcripts and you have audio of a big oral history collection, editorially, we can say, oh, this is well-shaped or mm -hmm. you overlooked this crucial group of people or you know, even technical things like the audio quality is problematic. What can we do about that? Or the transcripts 
you know, need to be done to a certain degree of professional expertise, right? There are guidelines for best practices in transcription. And the peer reviewers similarly could talk about, you know, what was the intellectual concept of this collection? How does it contribute to the field that this collection represents or intervenes in or, you know, whatever the right word is? See, that to me seems like we could definitely provide some value added. Sorry to interrupt you, but I guess then it gets back to your issue, the other issue you raised about the question of expertise and what expertise university presses have built in. Because unfortunately, I think one thing that not a lot of university presses can, like maybe we can provide feedback on, oh, this website needs to be, this isn't the best platform or this audio is not quite up to, up to snuff. But I don't, we can't then help them actually fix it in the way that we can if we're presented with a manuscript, right? And I would feel so, it would be so dispiriting for, I think, uh, as a creator to, to have someone say like, well, I can't tell you exactly what's wrong, but something is definitely wrong here. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that wouldn't be super useful, but I guess I would approach it on the assumption that the author would need to have some resources. I mean, that's where I think digital projects really compel presses and authors to find other institutional collaborators to work with them. Right. So that if a press doesn't have the technical expertise to say, you know, fix a technical problem or a design problem, that they're working with some some they, you know, either the press or the author or both have access to people who are web designers and coders and, you know, have the technical expertise. You know, I mean, I think if we're going to do this kind of work, we have to build partnerships so that people do, you know, we do, we can say to them, oh, we see this problem here. Here's a person who can help you with that. Or here are some resources that we can draw on. And, you know, I was talking about libraries in terms of preservation but libraries increasingly are also offering people who help with DH type work or provide resources to do that kind of work. And that's where I think if we're going to do that kind of project, we need to see it as building on and articulating relationships across the sort of array of people who are involved in scholarly communications. I don't, I don't see how we can do that work if we don't start building those partnerships. And of course, that all takes money too. Right. And I will say in terms of practical advice for anyone listening who is working on a, a DH, pro, a born digital DH project, if you consider establishing that relationship with, if your university is um, resourced or lucky enough to have a DH program, consider establishing that relationship first and then reaching out to a press or consider presses that have already published DH projects because they may then have resources that they can bring in to help you develop your project. I will say we've had, so MSU Press is looking to support the publication of Born Digital Projects, and we have had some productive conversations. And the ones that are thus far seeming most fruitful are ones where the um, authors or PIs have an existing relationship with a digital humanities program that has made a huge difference in terms of how viable the project is from a press perspective. I wonder if you could say more about that. I mean, I, I, one of the things that I'm really wondering about when we think about 
like really born digital, like here, this is a project where I've annotated some interactive map, right? A thing that you just like, there's no way to deal with it other than in the digital space. Like, I really wonder in a context like that, I'd like to hear you say more about like, what is the, what, what does the person who produced that need a, a university press for? Is it the peer review aspect? Is it the kind of is it the kind of imprimatur that says, yes, this is a, a certified scholarly project because we ran it through the same rigorous, you know, kind of vetting and editorial, you know, oversight that we would any particular monograph? Or is there like an, an aspect where this is connected to the conversation we were having earlier, like about getting the work plugged into the press's network and, and using the kind of marketing mechanisms to draw attention to something? that's otherwise already available, you know, in the world. Like I I see a lot of these projects where I sort of wonder, what do we need another kind of amplifier for this thing for um, institutionally, uh, if it's already open online and like what we just need to do is draw people's attention to it. So I would say that peer review is, I mean, it's feedback, right? That it's built in feedback with a certain set of best practices that I think a lot of born digital projects would benefit from. I think even more so perhaps than a book or a written document, you sort of sit on your computer and I'm making hand typing motions by yourself at 3 a.m. in the morning, perhaps maybe, and you create this thing and then you do, yeah, you put it out in the world and you maybe you tweet about it and people like your tweets, but you don't necessarily get that really thorough feedback that you get from a peer review process and from people who don't know you necessarily know you, right? Like maybe they're familiar with you. Like you, you get feedback from people who aren't your friends basically, and can give you feedback that I, like Catherine was mentioning about layout and like whether this is put together in a way that is most useful and best serving whatever content you're, or whatever analysis you're trying to share. So I, Obviously, I work in scholarly publishing. I can't say enough good things about peer review. I think it benefits all things. Yeah, I would add to that that it's still very much an issue in terms of academic careers that your work be peer reviewed. So, you know, that's sort of the negative side of it. You know, it is an imprimatur that means a lot to your tenure and promotion committee. And so I know people who do DH work are still struggling to have it recognized as scholarship. And one of the ways to approach that is to say, okay, then we will publish it with a university press, which means putting it through peer review, having it copy edited in some sense. And that then it be, the idea is it is the equivalent of a monograph. And I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, my sense is that, that there are still a lot of tenure and promotion committees who don't necessarily recognize a born digital project as the equivalent of a book in the, in the book disciplines. Obviously we're talking about those. Um, so I, I think we have an important role to play in that very narrow kind of technical, you need to have peer review to have something recognized as quality scholarship. But my hope is that the future is much more expansive than that. And that doing these kinds of projects will actually build stronger networks to support the intellectual work that is actually happening. And part of our role as presses has always been to oversee that peer review process. And of course, there are exciting things going on there too. We might reimagine peer review in interesting ways to match digital projects as well. 
And I just want to underscore the unfortunate point that Catherine raised about the value that presses can add to digital projects by denoting it as quote unquote published when it comes to having your work evaluated by a tenure committee. It's not the most exciting part of my job, but I do think it's of value. And so if quote unquote publishing digital born digital projects helps other people who are in the field understand the see those as on par with book projects i think that is definitely um, a worthwhile contribution publishing companies can make to uh, the dh field yeah it's interesting seeing so many i'm thinking of minnesota did a book called cut copy paste with a, a book history scholar called wendy treaton i think i got her last name wrong but it's one of those projects that not dissimilar from Kathleen Fitzpatrick's most recent book, where it went through so many like iterations of being in public, like it appeared in a manifold version and it was kind of proofread and added to and changed. And then like ultimately, you know, shows up somewhere else. And then finally lands in a kind of, here's the bound version, like that we came to at the end of this process. So like what the, what the boundaries are around that pod project are really interesting and shifting in, in ways that I think are concessions in part to what you're talking about, this idea that at some point it has to be the book equivalent um, so that we can, you know, recognize it in a tenure and promotion context, even if like the kind of intellectual work it's doing is happening in all these various kinds of ways and in different spaces. I wonder if, if this kind of thinking, if encountering these projects, if having this desire to, to have the press participating in these digital spaces, is it changing the kinds of projects that you're working on or the things that you're currently trying to acquire? Well, as I said a little bit earlier, I am one of the areas that I am developing as MSU Press Acquisitions Editor is a new focus on digital humanities and digital studies. That in and of itself is a new field that could, a new area of focus for us that couldn't exist without the ability of scholars to publish, either publish born digital projects or publish on digital platforms, which are slightly different things. And within that, I'll just say that I am especially interested in this new focus within digital studies and DH on what you, what's been called Black DH, African DH, Red DH, just building off of the existing work that MSU Press has done in Native American and Indigenous studies in African studies. And so I'm, I'm really excited to sort of take that, take that next step and look at how those conversations are being borne out in a digital sphere, if you will. And Caitlin, could you just quickly explain the difference between digital humanities and digital studies for folks who may, might not know? I would love to. <laughs> So um, there's a joke in DH that like the question, what is DH is dead and we, we should not try to define it anymore. But for those of you not in the community, you could say that digital humanities is the sort of digital humanities is using digital tools to study particular areas of interest. So using, so for example, I am a, I moonlight as a DH scholar. I use digital tools to study Nigerian history. Someone who works in digital studies is interested in how we as a society engage with digital tools, engage in digital spaces. So people who study the internet, people who study TikTok, people who study Black Twitter, things like that. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it's sort of studying, using these tools to study uh, the, the more or less conventional Nigerian history versus, say, studying Nigerians' use of TikTok. Although, obviously, there are people who bounce between both worlds, and I'm sure there's someone who's shaking their fist at me, and it's fine. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Catherine? Are you acquiring anything exciting or, or um, developing lists in particular areas you know, that are intersecting with all this stuff? Always. Yeah, I think one of the most exciting things that it's not just me, but Caitlin is also doing is sort of following where scholars are going and what um, has been called the environmental turn. So MSU Press has long published studies, uh, environmental studies, mostly focused on the Great Lakes, since that's where we are. And it's such an important, you know, the biggest freshwater watershed in the world. So we're really building on that. Looking forward, Caitlin is looking at environmental studies, especially in Africa and environmental justice projects uh, here in the United States. And we've launched a new uh, series, environmental history series called Environmental History of the Great Lakes. I can't remember the exact name. It's on our website. Check it out. I'm very excited about that. And that'll really be looking at the whole watershed and the history of the way people have occupied the land, used the land, used its resources, how it's been transformed over the centuries. So I'm really excited about that series. I'm also looking for environmental projects in some of the other areas that we're strong in, like rhetoric. We've got a a very well-known rhetoric list um, that for a long time was really focused on sort of classic issues of public address and politics. And the field of rhetoric itself is large and diverse and changing rapidly. And a couple of the areas, one of the areas that you're seeing in a, a growing amount of work is on environmental issues and environmental rhetoric and how they can force you to really think about what rhetoric is in a different way. So I'm really excited about, we have a number of projects um, coming out in that area. And, you know, we, like everyone, uh, when the pandemic hit, started thinking about COVID and the impact it was going to have on society. So we've got a big project looking at COVID rhetoric um, that's in process that I hope will be out uh, in the coming year, uh, looking at the way that it intersected with a lot of different areas and social, social factors in the United States. So lots of interesting stuff there. Can I make a plug for my own lists just so that scholars of Africa and the diaspora don't think that I've abandoned them for the sexy new DH world? Because I am really excited. I think in the fall, we will have a, an excellent number of projects on African history, on the relationship between China and Africa specifically. Kenya, um, and a new book on Thomas Sankara. And so we are also still doing the work of uh, supporting um, Africanist scholarship and also African diaspora work. And so I'm really excited to continue working on those projects as well. So please keep sending me your like, quote unquote, traditional uh, African cultural studies project, diaspora history projects. I still love those quite dearly. It's great. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what comes out in the next in the coming catalogs and how these conversations develop into, you know, further additional projects for MSU Press. I'll direct uh, listeners to the info, uh, the description of this episode to see some of those resources that we were talking about earlier and ways that you can get in touch with Catherine and Caitlin. And really just thank you both so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure um, to think about University Press publishing and to talk about what's been going on here at MSU Press. Great. Thanks so much, Kurt. Thanks for inviting me. 
Yeah, thank you so much. And if I remember correctly, this is the final MSU Press podcast. Yes. Well, unless someone at the press wants to take it up and go on without me, yes, this will be the last episode that I record. So yes, this will the be la- my, the last Kurt hosted sign podcast. Off. That's right. Yeah. Well, then thank you so much for sustaining the MSU Press podcast. Applause to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both again so much. It's been a real delight. You can find out more about the MSU Press at msupress.org. Catherine is on Twitter at Catherine underscore MSUP. And Caitlin is at CTR Edits. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milbe. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. And don't forget that the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.